0: Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. A couple of announcements. Number one, the picnic is in two weeks. There are sign-up sheets out in the um, out in the fellowship hall for food and help and carrying things and all the other things that go along with uh, the with picnic. And so you can uh, sign up out there. And then uh, uh, I was real pleased to see a number of you at the uh, conference that... Uh, uh, Sugarland Bible Church hosted the last uh, couple of days, Friday night, and uh, again, uh, all day yesterday with John Idesmo. Uh, John has uh, uh, an excellent ex- education and background, and I think everybody who went was uh, very impressed with him. I've been familiar with him and his work for uh, quite a number of years. And uh, then again, last, last night, I was invited over to... Uh, Andy Wood's house. Andy's a pastor over there and got to spend another three or four hours talking to John. That was really, really great. But that material is all up on the uh, Sugar Land Bible Church website, which is www.slbc, Sugar Land Bible Church. So if you could just remember that, slbc.org, and you can download those uh, the sound files. I think the video will also be up there, but it's a uh, tremendous material. And I think that uh, uh, it's not, comments I've heard were that uh, there wasn't a lot that you, you, well, let me put it this way. There was a lot you need to hear again, and you need to hear it from somebody who knows it in ways better than I know it. But there's a lot of new information. There were, I was only able to attend two sessions, and at those two sessions, I learned some, you know, there were two or three critical things that I learned that were uh, very important. So I really encourage you to uh, listen to uh, these particular uh, messages. And he also has some some books out. You can find most of what's still in print on Amazon and some things that are out of print you can still find on Amazon. We come together every Sunday to worship the Lord. Worship is a matter of our mental attitude. It is a focus on God. It's a focus on who he is and what he has done in our lives, what he's provided for us all that we have been given uh, by virtue of our salvation and our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that salvation is a focal point of our worship in terms of gratitude for our salvation, but also in terms of our spiritual life. Worship is very much a part of our spiritual life. And Scripture says that uh, in the New Testament era, in the church age, we worship by means of the Holy Spirit, And by means of truth, that means that the standard for worship is going to be in the Word of God, and the focus of worship is ultimately on the teaching of God's Word as the highest form of worship. And then uh, we are to worship by means of the Holy Spirit, which means we are to be walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, in right relationship with God, so that we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with Him, and that, of course, is the result of confessing our sins to Him. Uh, according to first john 1 9 so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give us all the opportunity to make sure that we are ready to study the word and that we are ready to worship the lord and that we'll be properly prepared and uh, after a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Father, it's a tremendous privilege to come together this morning to, to worship you, to focus upon who you are, to be reminded that all that we have and all that we are is from you and that you have given us uh, everything we need, more than we need for life and godliness. You have supplied us with everything. You've given us your word that reveals to us who you are, who we are, and uh, instructs us and informs us with all that you've given us and challenges us to live in light of all that you have given us. Father, we pray for this congregation, we pray for our effective witness in the world. We pray for those who are not here, some are here, not here because of illness, and we pray that they would uh, soon recover and uh, join us again, which others are here because of are not here because of their their travels and other things. we pray that you would keep them safe. Now Father, we pray that you would just uh, uh, help us to keep our focus this morning upon you, upon your word that we might concentrate upon you and that this might be a service that not only glorifies you, but in turn edifies us and strengthens us spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is in uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 41. Psalm 41. You can turn in there so that you can read along as I read through the psalm. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You, referring to the Lord, you will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friends, in whom I trusted, my, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up, that I may repay him. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. And set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Giving is every bit as much of the spiritual life as uh, so many other factors that we talk about and that we teach. The study of God's Word, faith rest drill, personal love for God, all of these are. Part of the spiritual life, our service to God is also part of our spiritual life and should be the result of the, uh, what we learn, how we grow, how we understand God's word rather than a necessarily spiritual service is not a cause of spiritual growth, it's a result of spiritual growth. And giving is part of our response to God, it's part of our service to God and part of our worship to God. Giving is based on our understanding of who God is and all that he has provided for us It's not something we do in order to somehow manipulate God to bless us or to provide for us in a material or financial way, but giving is an expression of our own appreciation for God's grace. It expresses our capacity in terms of grace and in terms of uh, our relationship to the Lord, and it also is an expression of our desire to uh, support the teaching of God's Word and to see that it is uh, take, that the financial aspects are taken care of both here uh, in terms of the local church as well as through the various uh, missionaries that we support. Scripture says, "It's every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful so much for all that you have provided for us, for everything that we have in life, all the physical, material things that you have provided for us, because we know that all that we have comes from you, and you provide for us that which we need in order to accomplish uh, your will in our lives. And Father, we thank you for the uh, infinite blessings that you have given us in Christ, and that you have given us everything we need for our spiritual life and to handle and face and surmount all of the challenges that we encounter in life. Now, Father, we pray that you would bless these gifts and that they would be used for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance on our time studying His Word. Father, You have revealed Yourself to us through the means of inspiration of human beings as God the Holy Spirit worked in and through them to write. That's what You wanted to be written and to preserve it in a way that uh, was without error and so that it could be handed down through the ages so that we might uh, know what you have communicated to us and that we might understand it, that your word was given to enlighten and to reveal, to disclose. It was not given to cover up, to hide, to make uh, make difficult, but to make things very clear for us so that we might understand who you are, who we are, and how we are to uh, live as creatures created in your image and in your likeness and as those who have been saved by the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, and that we, as those who are in Christ, that we might live in a way that reflects our status as new creatures in Christ. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, study this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and as I've pointed out in the recent uh, lessons, as we get into this, this opening prayer of the Apostle Paul, we see the emphases that Paul has in prayer for others, something we should pay attention to because too often when we pray, we're not always focusing on the same kinds of things, the same qualities, the same issues that are, are there, that are present uh, in these prayers that we find in the scriptures. Studying the prayers of scripture is a something of tremendous benefit for all of us just to follow the the emphases, the patterns, the uh, things that are uh, presented uh, within these, these particular prayers. And so at the very beginning, we've seen the emphasis on these three words, uh, faith, love, and hope. This morning, I want to focus on hope. And hope is a... As I said in the title, it's a future focus, it's a future reality that provides motivation and strength for the present. That as we face various challenges and difficulties and tribulation or adversity uh, during our present life, that which gets us over the hump, that which um, helps us to stay focused in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the struggle, no matter how long that struggle may last, is hope. And hope isn't this sort of uh, pusillanimous, weak idea that we often get in the English word that it's just some sort of wishful optimism. It's not just a belief in a religious principle, which is typical of our modern era, that religion is just a matter of each individual's perception. This isn't just some some, uh, uh, security blanket that works for you. It is something that is absolute and absolutely true, something that gives you tremendous confidence. It's a robust confidence, a certainty that, that things will be a certain way in the future and that because they will be that way in the future, it gives us strength for the present time. So the concept of hope in Scripture is a much more profound concept than what we find in in the um, uh, normal use of the language that we experience on a day to day basis, I pointed out uh, last time in terms of various uh, characteristics of the word hope that we find in scripture that hope is a it 's a confident expectation of a future good. Hope is never used in the New Testament in relation to something that is bad it 's always related to something that is that is good something that god has provided it's always focusing on our future destiny and that which god will provide for us in the future it is grounded in this uh, robust sense of certainty you when you get to this point where you understand the hope that we have in scripture it is more certain than anything that we uh, experience empirically in our lives and that is because faith, uh, hope has to be based on pr- some sp- prior spiritual growth. It's not that as a young believer you can't have a a measure of hope, but to really have the kind of hope that the Scripture speaks about, it means that you have grown beyond spiritual infancy and mastered some of the very basic spiritual skills that God has uh, provided for us in Scripture. If Faith is a focus on what God has said in His Word to be true, and in faith, we faith means that we believe it to be true. Now, what does that mean to believe something is true? It's not just sort of a sort of a uh, sort of a distanced uh, belief that yeah, that's that academically that's true. Sometimes we say yeah, such and such is true, but that really doesn't affect how we think, how we do anything. Uh, <clears throat> it is a belief that something is true. For example, if you are if you're sitting down at this time of year, I think an illustration related to taxes is good. And if you sit down and you are filling out your income tax re, uh, return and you're trying to pull together all of the information and you're looking at your checkbook, you need to make sure that all the figures and all balance out. And when everything does, you Stop. You don't keep going. You rest in that. You, you believe it's true, uh, that all, all this is accurate information, and you've got the right numbers down there, everything balances. So you quit working. You just stop. You, you rest in it. That's the rest aspect. When we talk about faith rest, faith focuses on the belief aspect that something is true. And the rest aspect is that we r- relax. It, because it is true, We are able now to relax and to rest. It doesn't mean that we don't do certain things. Scripture says that we walk by faith, but there's hundreds and hundreds of mandates and prohibitions within the New Testament that are part of the spiritual life. So we believe the Scriptures to be true, and because we believe them to be true, we obey the positive commands and we avoid doing the things that uh, we're told not to do. That is, if we want to remain in fellowship, abide in Christ, and walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So even though it is a walk by faith, it is not a faith that is sort of the mystical contemplative type of thing, it is a faith that means we, are, we understand that the word of God is true, and so we rest in its truth. We do what God says to do, and because of that, we are not uh, running around uh, with our lives governed by fear, anxiety, worry, all of these other things. And then once we, as we master that faith, then we move to the next level, which is understanding hope because hope is built on that confidence in God and his word that has been developed by our consistent use of the faith rest drill and by consistently claiming promises and applying them uh, in our lives. This is the structure we see here in the prayer that Paul has at the opening and the opening paragraph which extends from verse 3 down through verse 8. He begins saying we always give thanks Uh, To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Then, verse 5, he says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, uh, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Now, I enhanced the translation, put this up last week to show the, the thought structure, the thought flow. Uh, I could put a stick diagram up there, and that wouldn't mean anything to anybody, but I think this communicates how the clauses relate to one another. And that's important because it it helps us to understand that this phrase that begins uh, uh, verse 5 is not related to everything that he has said. It's related to the last statement of verse 4, the love for all the saints. They have love for all the saints because of the hope, which is laid up for you in heaven. So the hope then is seen in terms of the grammatical structure of this verse as being that which is critical to to uh, the love for all the saints and moving into a, a consistent application of the principle that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. In terms of a definition of hope, we see that hope uh, hope is... Uh, is a confidence in future realities that motivate us through present uh, unpleasantness, present difficulties, and it's interesting to see how in a new number, of different, uh, number of different contexts, hope is always related to perseverance, to endurance in times of testing and in times of trouble. I worked up a little diagram I wanted to use to show the relationship of faith, hope, and, and uh, faith, hope, and love as we as I sort of close out this series on these three virtues in the Christian life. In terms of the elementary skills, the basic skills that we have to master in the Christian life in order to move forward, advance, in maturity, we have to master these faith focused spiritual skills each of these are oriented to developing our ability to consistently trust god confession of sin walking by the spirit the faith rest drill grace orientation and doctrinal orientation the way they're listed sort of indicates a logical progression but we don't grow in that that kind of a way i mean when you go build a house when a builder goes to build a house, he may have an architectural plan. He's got his blueprint, but he does not. The, the building of the house does not always proceed in a, a logical order as it is set forth in a in a blueprint. You know, the plumber shows up one day, the electrician show up two days early, and then some carpenters show up five days later, and so things get done, but they don't get done in a uh, a real clear, neat pattern, same thing is true in terms of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is a result of learning what you 're taught from the pulpit so if you 're a brand new baby believer and you come to come to church, you come to Bible class, and the focus is on lessons related to uh, occupation with christ you 're going to learn a lot more about occupation with Christ as a baby believer than you are necessarily about. Uh, the faith rest drill or confession or walking by the spirit. You'll pick up important elements related to those more basic aspects, but you're, you're sort of working on developing the third floor before you are really completed the first floor. We don't grow in a neat, straight line is what I'm trying to say. Life is dynamic. We grow in fits and starts in different ways. And so the way I'm structuring this is not in a logical way, but to show the internal relationship of these spiritual skills uh, to one another. So that's the purpose of this next uh, this next little da- diagram, which looks at faith. Faith, in terms of how we norm- normally describe it, is a faith-rest drill. The rest part doesn't necessarily emphasize passivity. I mean, that is that we don't do anything. We just sort of have this mystical, contemplative, idea of faith, sort of like the old uh, Victorious Life, Keswick view, let go and let God. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, those of you who were, uh, have listened to the, to the messages related to the pastor's conference a few weeks ago understand that that phrase, let go and let God, if it's taken in isolation, almost sounds like, well, we're just not going to uh, hold on to our problems. We're going to cast our care upon him and we're going to let God take care of it. That's not what that phrase means if it's understood in its historical context as it developed uh, within what was known as the Higher Life or Victorious Life Movement. It actually talks, uh, refers to this idea of reaching a certain stage where you have a second blessing and uh, God takes over everything in our life and we no longer have to even make volitional decisions. We're just going to sort of be zapped into super-spirituality. That's that's far from the reality of Scripture. The reality is that we we walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We walk by faith, which means we have an object to our faith, which is the, the Word of God. Now, in terms of believing what God's Word says, that intersects with these other four elements that are basic to spiritual growth. Confession of sin. That if we disobey God, if we're committing any sin, we're out of fellowship. And so we have to confess uh, to God and we confess our sins. 1 John one nine says, And God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that to be true. So when we know we're out of fellowship, we confess our sin and we believe that God has forgiven us and cleansed us so we don't even need to have a guilt complex over it. It's it's wiped out. The slate is wiped clean, and God has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It's not an issue anymore, and so we can go forward without worrying, without being dragged down by the chains of guilt and remorse that uh, often accompany certain kinds of sin. So we have confession. That just gets us back in fellowship. It just puts us back in a place where we can grow. It doesn't cause growth. It just takes us back to a position where we, where we can grow, and that is in terms of a, a partnership, a fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit. So now, in order to go forward, we have to walk by the Spirit. So that the focal point in life is in the spiritual life isn't confession of sin. That's just a recovery mechanism. The focal point is consistency in walking by the Spirit abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking by means of truth. All of these are different ways that the writers of the New Testament describe the, the spiritual life. But the idea is to stay in fellowship, not to keep getting back in fellowship, but to stay in fellowship, to remain in fellowship, uh, to abide in Christ Uh, Jesus said, if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. And so that is comparable to walking by the Spirit. As we do that, we also are learning about God's grace. Not only his grace in terms of what he has provided for us at salvation, but that the whole spiritual life is based upon grace. Grace means that, that God doesn't deal with us on the basis of some sort of tit-for-tat procedure where uh, we have to do certain things and then he will bless us. He has already given us, as Ephesians 1, 1, 3 says, every spiritual blessings uh, in the heavenlies. As 2 Peter uh, one three says, we have been given... Uh, We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's already ours. It's a free gift. It was given to us at the instant of salvation. We don't have to do anything for it. We live in a world where we so often uh, operate on the principle of somebody does something for us then we have to return that favor and do something in return. And I find that this is good manners in many ways. But it also... If it's if it's really drilled into us, it also sometimes prevents us from being grace-oriented and just accepting the kindness and the gift of someone else. And so, if somebody gives you something, uh, you feel like you have to do something in return. That's not grace orientation. I keep telling these same two stories. Some people have never heard them before. My two favorite stories that, for me, really crystallize with grace orientation. Uh, is all about, come from uh, two men you, you all know fairly well, uh, George Meisinger and Charlie Clough. Or not Charlie Clough, George Meisinger and Jim Myers. George tells a story about when he was uh, li- living one summer, he and his wife were down from, uh, he was a student at Dallas Seminary, he was down from Dallas, and he was living one, one summer uh, with uh, uh, Pastor and Betty Theme. And they were going on vacation. They had p- loaded up the car with everything, they were headed off to Arizona for a two- or three-week vacation, and George and Sandy were house-sitting. And um, Bob had gone out to the car to get in, and he stopped, remembered something, came back to George and said, George, you're going to need some money to get through the next few weeks and take care of things. So he pulls, this was about 1964, so he pulls out a wad of $100 bills and peeled off about $300 bills. That was a lot of money in 1963 or 64 peeled off about $300 bills, and gave them to George. And George said, no, 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 I I can't take that. And Bob looked him in the eye and said, George, if you can't accept this, you will never understand grace. Think about that. Somebody does something nice for you, and you feel like you have to do something in return, you've got to deal with the fact that you are learning something about being grace-oriented. And if you do something in return because you feel like you have to do that, you didn't pass the test. You didn't learn to be gracious and just accept that kindness. Later on, you can do something else. But but if you do things for people and you expect something in return, you haven't learned grace orientation yet. You still have to learn that, and that's really tough for some people because of the way they have been, uh, the way they have been brought up, and the way they have been been trained. Second illustration I always like is when uh, uh, Jim Myers was down one summer and they were uh, getting rid of a bunch of books in the in the library at the church, and uh, Bob asked him if he would, he said, go in there and take any books that you want. And George went in and took, a, I mean, uh, Jim went in and took two or three boxes of books, and later he said, Robbie, I just wasn't grace-oriented enough to take the whole library. And they say see that's grace orientation. see when you ask God for something, sometimes we ask for just a few things because we, we don't really want to you know get make god in, in inconvenience God in any way and and we don't want to exploit god's grace, but that's what we're expected to do is exploit god's grace He's given us everything we need to take advantage of that and to use it uh, and that's part of learning the learning to grow as a believer but but grace orientation also goes. Uh, in hand in hand and in tandem with doctrinal orientation because in grace orientation we're changing the way we think so it lines up with God's grace uh, principles in scripture and doctrinal orientation basically means that we're learning what God's word says and we're learning to think as God thinks and that's what those two things mean but but when you look at these these four outer circles as I've set them up on this diagram they all relate to and are based on believing what the word of God says to be true. And as we believe that to be true, then it, that's the foundation for these, for these other elements. So as we talked about faith a couple of weeks ago, faith is trusting that something that God says in his word is true, and we're living in, as if that is absolute truth. Then the second category, we, which I focused on last, last time, was in the area of love. I defined love as doing that which is best for the object of love, best being defined by what God says is best. Uh, That gives it an objective basis rather than a subjective basis on our part that often may be motivated by a personal or selfish agenda. But the advanced spiritual skills, personal love for God, unconditional love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner, inner happiness or tranquility, these all flow out of that focus on, on God that uh, develops in as our love for him matures. But what gets us from the ground floor to the third floor is the second floor, which is hope. And hope is when we, we have this robust confidence that the future is more real to us than our present circumstances. The future realities that God has promised are more real to us than our present circumstances, so that that enables us then to uh, surmount the difficulties, the adversities, the problems, and then we can uh, move forward and move toward spiritual maturity. So this Sort of uh, uh, by doing it this way, I hope to give you an understanding of how these connect and intersect. But we don't grow always by just building elements in the first floor and then the second floor and then the third floor. Like I said, our growth is dynamic. We grow in different ways in different areas. But this sets up a little more of uh, showing how it's a, a logical, a logical structure. Now, as I've pointed out in the past, when we look at these verses. There's many times in Scripture where these three virtues are linked together, uh, faith and love in a number of passages, love and hope in a number of passages, and a few passages that mention all three of them, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 states, But let us who are of the day be sober. That doesn't mean of uh, not getting drunk. It means to have an objective mindset. That's the idea in the Greek. Let us of the day think objectively. Putting on, that is, how do we do this? By putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. So again we see these three virtues linked together. Uh, Paul here uses the Roman armor, the armor of the Roman soldier as his Illustration, these are elements of the armor that a Roman soldier would wear in order pr- to protect uh, the vital, his vital organs in combat. He identifies uh, the breastplate and the helmet a little differently in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. This isn't what, so this isn't what you call an absolute illustration. He's communicating protection, that what protects us in the Christian life is this armor. It's defensive so that whatever is attacking us, whatever circumstances, uh, the circumstances are that we run into, it is these three things that provide a protection uh, for us. It is the breastplate of faith and love and then helmet is the hope of salvation. Now, when we use the word salvation... Often, the, because of the way we use this in modern evangelical uh, usage, we think of salvation only in terms of what I call justification salvation, moving from being an unbeliever to a believer, believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's not how Paul uses it in many cases. The Scripture, uh, in fact, in many cases, the word uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't refer to justification at all. It refers to either the ongoing spiritual growth of the believer as we are being saved from the power of sin, experiential sanctification. And in a number of passages, it refers to the end game, which is when we're absent from the body, we're face to face with the Lord, and we are saved or delivered from the sin, sin nature, the presence of the sin nature. And that is how Paul is using the word in this particular, uh, this particular verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 9, Paul says to them, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Now the context is very important here. In 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, Paul gives the foundational uh, discourse on the rapture, on what happens at death, And that just because a believer dies doesn't put him in an inferior position to believers who are still alive when Jesus returns. And that Jesus will return uh, in the air and the clouds, and those who are dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord, comfort one another with these words. That's that context at the end of chapter 4. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he shifts to talking about what happens after the rapture, which is the period we call the tribulation, otherwise called here the day of the Lord. And he contrasts the believer today, we are of the day, and those who are unbelievers are of the night, and they're the ones who will be caught off guard and surprised when the day of the Lord comes. So this is what he means when he talks about we are of the day, Uh, therefore we are to be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as in a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why? Because God did not appoint us to wrath. Here, the term wrath is a technical term for the tribulation period. Because God has not destined us for that sort of divine discipline and judgment in history, but to obtain salvation—that is, deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the word here for for salvation isn't even talking about phase. Two experiential salvation deliverance it 's focused on the fact of ultimate glorification, and that uh, whether we 're alive or not at the time of the rapture, we all have the promise we do not go, i mean we do not go through uh, the tribulation period, so we will be, are destined to obtain salvation so this is talking about phase three salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that together we wake or sleep, we should live together for him. Living together with him is a our future destiny that is our destiny is to believers to be with him forever, as Paul said in first thessalonians four seventeen thus we shall ever be with the Lord, and we will live together with him. That is our destiny so the when we talk about the uh, hope of our salvation, that salvation is that phase three deliverance from this body when we are uh, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, whether that comes at the rapture or at at death, we are with him and we'll be with him uh, forever. So the focus here is on that future destiny with the Lord. Now the next passage I want to go to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Some of you were here, many of you were here Thursday night, or excuse me, Tuesday night when I went through this passage in the Acts study, just putting, uh, we went through a little series for about two or three weeks dealing with the uh, gift of tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, and its first occurrence at, um, at on the day of Pentecost. And I ended up with this verse, went through the passage in detail. Some of you who haven't heard that may not catch everything I'm saying now, but I want to connect this back because the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13, which talks about love, uh, the first. Uh, seven verses focus on the description of love which we covered last week it's the last verse that connects faith and hope to love and paul says and now and as i showed on tuesday night the now here is a different word from the now in the previous verse and these there are two different words in greek for now there's the word rt which is used in verse 12 but now we see through a mirror dimly but then face to face And then we have in verse 13 a different now. This is the Greek word nuni. And the difference is that although many times the words can be used uh, interchangeably, when you find both words used in the same context, the word that's used in verse 12 is a more immediate now, right now. And the now that is used in verse 13 has a broader broader sense. So if I used RT, I would be talking about like right now, right now in this this morning on uh, today, which is uh, April the uh, what's today? April the 3rd. And the other now would be a broader now, which could refer to now in this time period, in this decade, uh, in this age, something of that nature. And so in this section of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul has talked about how the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge will be abolished, and the gift of tongues will cease. He then goes on to give a couple of different illustrations of how that will happen. And in that, he talks about now and then. Now and then. And in verse 12, he says, but now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And a lot of people think when they read that, Uh, Sort of the first blush reaction is the face-to-face there means face-to-face with Jesus, face-to-face with God. That's not what it means at all, and I'm going to show you why, why in just a minute. But we have to understand that there's this now when prophecy, knowledge, tongues are in effect, and when faith, hope, and love are in effect. And so I put together this little chart to try to help us understand that, that you're talking about this initial time period when prophecy, knowledge, tongues, faith, hope, and love are all in effect. And then we're told in verse 9 that when the perfect comes, that which is partial, that which is incomplete, which is prophecy and knowledge, that will be done away with, that will be abolished. And so the only thing that after the perfect comes, then faith, hope, and love will continue. That's verse 13. But now abide or now continue faith, hope, and love. The issue is when's the time period that this perfect uh, this perfect describes? And then... It's obvious that love, from other passages in Scripture, we looked at them last week, I'll point them out again, they're in the heading, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Romans 8, 24, and 25. Faith and hope don't operate when we're face-to-face with the Lord because fa- we walk by faith, not by sight. When we're face-to-face with the Lord, when we're absent from this body and in heaven, we'll be walking by sight. Same thing with hope. Hope does not operate with what we see. So when once we see the end game. Then faith and hope are no longer operative. Love continues. So we have to decide when these vertical lines occur. What are the, what are the time periods there? And answer the question when Paul says now and then, what is, to what is he referring by the now? Is he talking now in this life, then in heaven? Or is he talking about now at this t- time of the apostolic age, of the church age, And then, once the canon is completed, now the view that we often hear in terms of understanding this now and then in the perfect is that the perfect refers to being uh, refers to death or rapture. It's taken as uh, something that is flawless. So when we when the perfect comes, that is when we see things as they really are, and we see Jesus because that's what face to face means. So this is then then understood or interpreted to be. Uh, that when the perfect comes, that it's either a death when we're face-to-face with the Lord or when the rapture comes, when the second coming arrives, when whatever it is, but when we're no longer in this life and we can see things as they really are, then we're no longer going to see through a mirror dimly. This is that interpretation. Um, so now refers to now in this life, then refers to heaven. And in that view, which is the vast majority view out there, Faith, hope, and love have to continue in heaven because that's they occur during the then period. The problem with this is that faith and hope end when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So this scenario really can't work. The only scenario that works is this one. The now must refer to the immediate now, which fits the use of the word now. Now in this pre canon period, we see through a mirror dimly, why is the reflection dim? we don 't have the complete revelation of god we we're looking at a three quarters of a mirror we don't see the whole mirror we don 't have all the parts there, uh, but then face to face face to face with the completed canon of scripture, then we have the with the under the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture, we can see ourselves as we truly are, and so face to face is not face-to-face with the Lord, but face-to-face with a completed canon, face-to-face with His Word, because only love abides forever. Only love continues after we're face-to-face with the Lord. So 1 Corinthians thirteen, thirteen emphasizes that faith and hope are crucial in this age and in this life. But when this life is over with, What continues is love. Why? Because God is love. It is inherent within his very character. It's one of the few attributes of God that is ascribed to him in that way. God is holy. God is love. And so this is his essential uh, essential nature. So faith, hope, and love are identified as the three uh, top virtues for the Christian life. And then we come to Romans chapter 5. Another great passage on hope. Five uh, two says, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in, and the Greek preposition here is epia, and it has the idea on the basis of hope. So there again we see that joy or rejoicing or happiness is on the basis of hope. So hope, we have to have hope to really experience that. Common. Hope flows out of this robust certainty we have in our future destiny and leads to a fuller peace that passes all understanding. So, through whom that is in context, through Christ, stated in the previous verse, also we have access by means of faith into this grace in which we stand. See, that's the foundational. Uh, spiritual skills, faith, rest, drill, grace, orientation, doctrinal orientation, walking by the Spirit. And we rejoice on the basis of hope of the glory of God, which takes us to a future time. We're focusing on the end game. And this becomes clear in the next couple of verses. This is just a great passage. It goes along with, the, with James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Paul goes on to say, "...and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations." Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody and have anybody raise their hand this morning, but I would bet that in the last week, almost everybody here faced a number of disappointments, uh, faced a number of challenges, faced a number of irritations in life. And I I would suggest that your knee-jerk reaction might not have been glorying in that tribulation. That just wasn't the first thing that came to your mind was, You know, I just thank God that life is so hard right now. (laughs) See, we have something to go on here. We have a little growth area here. So, but that's what Paul says. Not only this, but because we understand hope, this this robust confidence that we have, we can glory in all of that miserable, tough, those miserably tough circumstances that we face on a day-to-day basis. Now, that's why the spiritual life is supernatural. You can't do that on your own. You can't manufacture it. You, got, you can only do it if you're walking by the Spirit. You can't do it just because you say, okay, I'm going to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps today and I'm going to make sure that I glory and exalt and brag and boast. That's the idea in glory here. Uh, I'm, I want to boast in my um, tribulation. See, we usually don't boast. We usually complain about our tribulations. And then we have a, 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 prep, a, a excuse me a participle here, a causal adverbial participle that should be translated because we know something. See that knowledge comes from doctrinal orientation, and, and we know with a confidence that we know that that tribulation produces endurance. You can't learn to persevere if you don't have something tough to persevere through. It won't happen. So God's just giving you an opportunity to grow. So per, And perseverance produces character. And character then produces hope. See, there's a nice little progression there in Scripture. And that hope is that as we go through the, the trials and the tests and we learn to endure, and that Greek word for perseverance is hupomone, which means to stay under uh, the, the, the adversity, under the pressure, We stay under the pressure, and character is formed. And when that character is formed, then that builds to hope. So hope isn't something that you have coming out of your spiritual diapers. You have to grow a little more uh, before you really can get to this this perception and this confident expectation. So there's perseverance, character, character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So hope gives us that, that uh, expectation and provides stability in our life in the midst of, of life's difficulties. I want to move over a couple of ch- other chapters in Romans to Romans 8 24 and 25. So just turn over a couple of pages in your Bible. And you'll remember, because I know most of you were at the conference, and those of you who were not, uh, I'll just tell you now, that Romans 6, 7, and 8 is not talking about getting eternal life anymore. That's Romans 3, 4, and 5. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is talking about living in light of your new status as a justified believer and experiencing the fullness of life, which is what Paul often means by eternal life—not just life without end, but the fullness, the robustness, the joy that God has for us in our in our great spiritual life. So, when we come to Romans eight, this is the this is the climax of Paul's uh, section on the spiritual life. It's not until Romans eight that he introduces the Holy Spirit. In Romans six, he says, "Look, we've been identified with Christ." so that we are positionally dead to the tyranny of the sin nature. You don't have to follow the dictates of the sin nature. Romans 7 says, oh, okay, i tried to do this my own way by pulling, and Paul says, by pulling myself up by my bootstraps and just doing what the law said to do, but it always ended up in sin. See, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit yet. It's not until you get into Romans 8 that you return to talking about the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that, We either walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit, and walking according to the spirit is the key to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So when we get down to verse 24 and 25, actually from about verse 19 down to 25 is a section, we have to remember we're talking about those who are already justified but are needing to experience uh, full spiritual growth. That's, That's the focus of his discussion. So he says in verse 24... For we were saved in this hope. Well, golly, it sure sounds like he's using saved here to refer to something that happened in the past, especially since it's in the aorist tense. But the problem is that the aorist tense is often used in what's called a future sense. Something in the future is so certain that it is spoken of as already completed. And that's the idea here. Nowhere else in Romans has Paul used the word sozo for salvation or saved in reference to justification. And justification isn't the context here, as I just pointed out. It is experiential growth, our, our ongoing spiritual life. And so this is not talking about getting eternal life. That's not, we, it's not saying we were justified by this hope, but we are. we grow to spiritual maturity by this hope. Ah, it's a motivational factor. And then he goes on to say, but hope that is seen is not hope. That's why I say hope ends when we're face to face with the Lord. Hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with, there's that word again, perseverance. Now to understand this, let's get the context. We'll just go back one verse initially. In verse 23, Paul says, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what we got at salvation. The focus in the first fruits of the Spirit is all that we're given by the Holy Spirit, the instant of salvation. We're baptized by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit. We're given spiritual gifts. And then we have the filling by means of the Spirit, which is the only thing that we can lose and we recover when we're back in fellowship. But notice where, where's the focus here? Not only that, but we also we also who have the first fruits of the spirit. That's what we got at justification. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. Waiting—that's future. We're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Now, here's an example for those of you who have thought redemption only applies to to uh, what Jesus Christ did on the cross this applies to the physical body paul is using the concept of redemption here to indicate what happens when when even creation gets to its renovated state we're eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of the body that's when we're face to face with the lord with in resurrection body that only comes after the rapture so what's the orientation past present or future it's future so we're, when we talk, we talk about we are by this hope we are saved, we have to recognize the context is clearly talking about future, not the past. If you go back to Romans 8.18, let's just read through this to get the full context. Paul says, For I consider it that the sufferings of this present time... Oh, golly, there we're back talking about suffering again. But we have to glory in our tribulation. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When we have fixated on the glory, that hope of our calling, that future expectation, then no matter what the hell on earth is that we're going through on a day-by-day basis, it pales in comparison in light of what our understanding of our future destiny is. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation, and here he personifies creation, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation, that is, all the, all of what we call nature, all of that around us suffers. It is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It's brought under the curse, but it will have a future reversal of that curse at the end of time, at the end of the millennial kingdom, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I think it always surprises a lot of people to realize that when Adam sinned, it it didn't just mess up the environment, it radically destroyed the environment. And all everything else that we see since then is just a manifestation of that. And there's not going to be an environmental cleansing until Jesus comes back. And it's only going to be partial during the millennial kingdom, but it's complete when the new heavens and the new earth. So there is, there is a physical dimension to sin that when Adam sinned, it just didn't mess him up Adam It didn't just mess up Adam and Eve, it messed up the trees, it messed up the ground, it messed up every planet, it messed up the solar system. When he ate of that fruit, at that instant the second law of thermodynamics went into effect and everything started moving from a state of order to to a state of disorder. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. So he's comparing the believer to the to creation because we're looking forward to something. And that something tells is, is related to hope. For we were saved, it's a future heirist. We will be sanctified, it's certain we will be sanctified by this hope. That is the certainty of our future. But hope that is seen is not hope. You can't operate on empiricism. Don't get so focused on what you hear, see, sense, feel, all those details of life. Focus on the unseen future reality. Just some other verses, just to write down the references, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.3, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Ephesians 1.15, and Philemon 5 we've looked at in the past, connecting faith, hope, and love. And Paul's uh, benediction conclusion in Romans fifteen thirteen says, Now may the God of hope, God is a God of hope. He is a God who wants to make sure that you, he's given you this hope, this expectation. We just have to get our volition fixated on it. Now may the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace by believing that you may abound in hope by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is related to our future inheritance. Hope is understanding this future inheritance that we have, which is what Paul goes on to say, say here in verse, Colossians 1-5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. This is what uh, First Peter talks about, is this hope that is reserved for us undefiled in heaven. So we'll come back and talk about connecting hope to inheritance next Sunday morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that that there is a future destiny for us, that we are in a training ground, and what gets us through the hard times of the training now is uh, this fixation on our hope, our future destiny, that making sure that that is so real in our lives, that is more real to us than the day-to-day experience that we have so that we can then surmount the difficulties that we face on a day-to-day basis, that you have given us everything we need in order to face and handle these uh, day-to-day challenges. Father, we pray for those who are here and are not sure of their eternal destiny or not certain of their eternal salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, so that by trusting in him, You can have eternal life. That's all that is needed is simply believing in him, trusting in him. And at that instant, God the Father who is omniscient knows what you're believing in, knows what you trust in. And at that instant, you are given the righteousness of Christ. You are declared just. You are regenerated. And this can never be reversed. And you have uh, eternal life and and an eternal destiny in heaven. Now, Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with what we've studied this morning. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would help to make it very real to us in our day-to-day life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.